Hello, my dear, I'm Peter Resnick. Welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. Before we start, I want to remind those of you who would like to write to me and don't have my email address. Uh, it is drpeterresnick at gmail.com. Uh, D-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-A-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. You can also visit my website, drpeterresnick.com. And if you want to call us during this show uh, with your comments and or questions, you can do it as well. The number to call is 888-874-4888. I will repeat, 888-874-4888. But uh, please do me a favor. Today, when you call, call only with your comments and or questions about the subject that we are discussing. Usually, when I give my talks on health and wellness, I offer anyone if they want to share with their night dream or some challenge that they're facing in their life to call and I will interrupt whatever I'm dealing with, whatever I'm discussing, and I will be happy, more than happy to deal, uh, to try to help them out, to deal with whatever question or issue they have. But today, uh, I would like to stay on the subject, as I said, because we continue our discussion uh, or our dialogue on Ten Commandments, and I want to stay on the topic. My nephew, uh, Vladimir Engert, and I. Hello, Vlad. Hey, can you see me? Hi. Yeah, I see you. Great. Can you see me? Yeah. Okay, good. So, uh, say hello to everybody. Hey, everybody. Okay. Uh, some of you will be able to see us because we are recording it, recording our um, meeting, this uh, dialogue, and I will be posting it on my uh, YouTube channel. But uh, my dear audience at PRN, you cannot see us, but you can hear us well, I hope. And Vlad and I, oh, let me first tell you a little about Vlad, just in case if you tuned in today and you haven't had a chance to hear Vlad yet. Uh, Vlad, is, Vlad is not only my nephew, that's not his, uh, what is it, call for fame. He's a teacher, a psychic medium, an energy healer, and the creator of what he calls realized medicine. Though, Vlad, I have to tell you something. Just yesterday, I realized why you kind of cringed. You didn't like when I would say um, energy healer. I understood why. Because I read about energy, energy runs out. Energy, whether it's uh, uh, electrical energy or, or physical energy, it runs out. And what you do doesn't run out of energy. Am I right? <laughs> Did right. I find it yet? It doesn't come from me, so it can't run out. Right, right. Thanks. Uh, unfortunately, no, uh, today is not the subject of our uh, talk, the energy, but... Uh, Vlad and I already discussed it. I invite, invited him a couple of times to talk about his work. But today we'll be talking about the Ten Commandments. On September 29th, we started this dialogue. And all we covered, so if it is on PRN archives, if you missed the show, you can find it um, in the archives. 
we managed to cover only two of the commandments, the first one and the second one. And I did not even have a chance to give you an exercise that I wanted to do related to the second commandments. But I would like, Vlad, if you don't mind, uh, I would like you to summarize, because you do it so well, you can do it uh, very nicely to encapsulate in, in, in few phrases what we covered, why second commandment is so important to address in our life. That is, the, they shall not make graven images of any likeness. Would you, would you give us an overview of what we discussed? I look at it as a, as a practical text that is everyday life. To me, it's not a religious uh, commandment or precept, or uh, I don't know what the word would be. But for me, graven images meaning if I have a, a conflict, I create a conflict, usually it's self-created, and I consume myself as another human being, my mind and my heart, it's a graven image. If I create, um, I'm due to go to, a, to an interview and I'm structuring in my mind and trying to condition how it's going to be, I'm already creating a graven image because it doesn't exist. It's up, it's up to me to choose the outcome and allow it and stop trying to manage God. In other words, the, the flow of energy that comes through my soul and enables me to co-create reality. So it doesn't have to be a statue or an idol or a structure or a frog or a dinosaur. It literally, anything that consumes our minds or our hearts and takes up space in our minds and hearts that might limit uh, the unlimited possibilities of the creative force. That's what it does. It consumes us. So it limits the possibilities of the creative force to come through us and to allow us to co-create what we desire. Thank you. I, I just also want to add also the graven images that we created from childhood. For example, some idea that we had of ourselves, who we had to become or who we want to, to look like. All those graven images are running our life. Uh, in fact, what comes to me now is um, a friend of mine in his doctorate dissertation, Frank Clifton, wrote, any prolonged mode of being any prolonged mode of being, regardless whether it's labeled by the society, positive or negative, clouds one's openness and receptivity to life. Nice, right? Good. So now let's do the exercise. And this is a mental imagery exercise, ladies and gentlemen. By now, uh, you know, this is a show of number 47 and probably at least in 12 or 13 shows, I shared with you with exercises, I taught you about mental imagery, why it works, how it works, not, not fantasies that come to our mind, but mental images that appear spontaneously, either just in our mind as we are awake and we are involved with our activities, or exercises that are solicited by being given by someone. Like right now, I will give you 
a mental exercise. And one of the things about mental imagery is that uh, it's a subjective experience. There is no right or wrong experience. So whatever comes to your mind is the right thing for you. And then you have freedom once I give you some instructions to do what you want to do with it. Okay, so this exercise is about letting go of any graven images. That is letting go of violating of the second commandment. So if you wish to participate, not if you're driving your car and listening now to me, uh, just sit comfortable and close your eyes. If you can, place your hands on your lap or on the arms of the chair. Breathe out gently, slowly, breathe in normally. Breathing out twice as slow as breathing in. And now think or imagine of going into a museum of your personal history. Look around and see what are the graven images that are there, whether it can be pictures or statues or thoughts, whatever it is, just notice. Look around, go around the museum. Now physically breathe out one time and break all the idols down. And if it's papers, tear them up. Whatever it is, destroy it in every possible way. And now whatever it is broken or torn, take it out of this museum, open the doors, open the windows. This space will be used for something much more constructive. But what you took out, now incinerate. Remember, everything is possible in your world, in the world of imagination. Set it all on fire, a powerful fire that burns everything down. When only ashes are left, Take a big bag and collect the ashes. Take the ashes now, the bag and the ash with the ashes, and go to the garden of life. You take a seed now out of your pocket. It's there. It is a seed of unlimited possibilities. Plant the seed. And now ashes are wonderful fertilizer, as you may know. Spread the ashes around. Take a hose and water the ground. See what happens. When ready. Breathe out gently one time and open your eyes. Okay, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, those of you who participated, um, you can, you're welcome to call in uh, and share with your experience. 
those of you who cannot call in, uh, you're welcome to send me an email. Vlad, do you want to share with your experience? <laughs> I can make a comment. I think that might be helpful to the listeners, uh, if I may. Sure. Um, there's something to be said about the world of imagination. One of our masters from our community said, a person that can alter an outcome of reality with his imagination is greater than the person that can predict a possible outcome. And so I find that uh, in, in people who do take up a lot of space in their hearts and their minds with graven images, as what we call them uh, structurally from the book, people that consume themselves and try to manage the flow of God um, usually lose, actually have incredible imagination because they're so busy being consumed and trying to structure their outcomes. They have incredible imagination only if they would start imagining what they want instead of imagining what they don't want. You know, someone called me from a hospital and says, oh, my grandmother's dying. I said, well, okay, so what are you going to do? Well, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm, all I can imagine is her dying in the coffin and the funeral. I said, why would you imagine something you don't want? What's the point? If you understand that imagination comes from the flow, then allow yourself uh, uh, the, the possibility that you can contribute to the positive outcome, not with positive thought, but positive imagination, and only if you can make space for that which co-creates through you. So if you can destroy, like we just did in the exercise, all the graven images and the perceived, preconceived notions or statistics of what could possibly happen to your grandmother, then you can make space for that which sustains everything that flows through you and allows you to co-create the reality you truly desire instead of living at the mercy of it. But I, I, I would like to add also, as you're doing this, and uh, putting energy into images of positive outcome, as you're doing it, you have to, at that, that very moment when you're doing it, you have to let go of the attachment to the outcome. That is, you're imagining your grandmother being well, but you remember that you are not God. So you are commit, you are contributing a little bit to as much as you can to the outcome, but then you step away because it's not in your hands. That's I, probably the biggest gift. I don't know, Vlad, if I ever told you this, but the biggest gift my teacher of blessed memory, Colette, ever gave me was. Uh, I, I think it was the second year I knew her. That was in 1991. And I worked with a cancer patient in New York, and then I traveled to Israel. And I said to Colette, uh, how can I help this cancer patient, Colette? And, I, and, and she said, God forbid, we're not into helping people. <laughs> I said, what? And at that time, she was like 82 years old. And I said, isn't it what you've done, you know, 60 years of your life? And she said, no, I am not that arrogant. She said, look what happens. If you think that you help people, then those who are getting better, you feel so proud, you are God, you saved the person. But 
if a person is not getting well, or God forbid the person died, you murdered this person. You are God, it, everything depends on you. And I said, then how do we work with people? What do we do? She said, what you do is you're, you're a sharer. You share with what you know to the best of your ability. But there are more things that are involved in a person getting well or not getting well. And that is a person's relationship with oneself, a person's relationship with his family, a person's relationship with God, and then your contribution. And if all those components click, your contribution also worked, and you thank God that it worked. And if it didn't, as long as you did your best, you step aside. You are not attached to the outcome. That's what it is. Anything you want to say? Uh, I, if, I, if I may share it, a practical story that I experienced myself having to do with this subject. It's really what made my understanding of this subject and this commandment more concrete. My oldest, and I'm not going to go through a long story, but my oldest child in 2009 drove over an improvised explosive device in Iraq and lost 25% of his skull and was paralyzed, blind. Uh, had 80 fractures in his face, his eye fell into his head, he had a piece of shrapnel the size of my thumb shoot through his brain, and the, 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 the fragment was hot, so it singed his brain. So when they called me, he was still in Frankfurt, uh, or an hour outside of Frankfurt, the, uh, the United States Army called me and said, look, you know, he's in a coma with 105 fever, he has fragments in his brain, a, a shrapnel in his brain, shrapnel in his arm. And they finally brought him to Bethesda Naval Hospital. And um, the neurosurgeon, who's a you know, huge ego, who's a, who's a lieutenant colonel in the Navy, came out in the hallway and invited his, uh, his mother and myself to talk to us. He said, look, I would like you to prepare yourself. Listen to the language. I'd like you to prepare yourself. Your child is going to be a vegetable at best. And I, I thought, you don't know what's going to happen to you in five minutes. How are you predicting my kid's future? You got a crystal ball? So he was, he was disturbed that I reacted this way. I said, uh, I, said I don't know. I don't know. He said, sir, you don't understand. His, his brain was singed. Nerves don't restore themselves. And the brain doesn't mend itself that way. I said, sir, you, you can do your job. But I wish you would stop predicting my possibilities and making someone else's story mine. I'm not a statistic, and neither is my son. And so I could have gone, my, my tendency uh, is to leap into the unknown and want to fix it all. And uh, no matter what kind of abilities or, or kind of delusions of grandeur I have about myself and my abilities, they were meaningless. It, it's, I'm making a reference to what Colette spoke to you about. And so instead of standing there and trying to mend his brain with my uh, knowledge of psychic surgery and the things that I do for other people, I stood for four hours a day and prayed. I didn't pray in supplication and ask the divine force to help me or to come down and mend him. I prayed to occupy my expression with gratitude, meaning that I was present but yet unattached to the outcome 
and I wasn't pulling the statistic or the lack of possibilities into his future or mine, I was completely present so that that which creates everything and can mend the unmendable can ascend into the reality and make it whole and complete. My kid just had a child in July. He's uh, uh, completely recovered. His eyes came back. He can see. He's had five plastic surgeries, but he's a, um, um, a sniff, bomb-sniffing dog handler in Miami Airport. So that's my story and my practical view. And, and if, when you see, when you meet him, you don't see that half, you know, that what's happening under his skull. It affected his personality, if anything. <laughs> but, <That's> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't suggest anybody get blown up, but that's, you know, right. that's Thanks for sharing that. Let's move now to the third commandment. It's a very interesting commandment. And for many years, I had kind of difficulties understanding it. Uh, you shall not have take uh, God's name in vain. Uh, but I spoke first before uh, on the first commandment, on the second commandment. Would you like to start talking about the third commandment? It's one of my favorites. Okay. So I'm um, looking forward to hearing because I never heard you speak about first, it. It's very interesting that I had asked uh, our, our mutual friend, Jerry Epstein, a long time ago about this commandment. Uh -huh. He gave me the beginning kind of structure of what I came up with eventually. And uh, what I understood about this commandment by reading the text, in the morning prayer for men, or for everyone, it says, God spoke, I think it in Torah it says, God spoke and the world came to be. God doesn't speak, it's not a person, it expressed itself. And we are, and everything around us is its expression. And our lives are our expression. So that means what we express then becomes so. So then if we are, when we express a commitment or make, take, uh, or give our word for something, we are pushing the energy of our souls out outwardly and creating bubbles of reality. So the creative force fuels our souls, and then based on the broadness of our intellect, we push out bubbles of reality, and we, with our intention and our will, create our reality. Well, if you don't keep your word to yourself, then, <coughs> then your word starts to have no meaning and no momentum you cannot create with it. So then your words become meaningless. And when you speak or give your word or, or take a stand for something, your words come out and fall on the floor. So really, you cannot actively participate in co-creating your reality. So people say, oh, well, you know, uh, actually students of Jerry that I recently had uh, sessions with, they said, oh, you know, I know all this information, I studied. Yeah, but you study things that are helpful to others. Do you keep your word yourself to yourself? If you made a commitment to go to the gym in the morning, get up and go to the gym. 
If you made a commitment to run five minutes or five miles or, or, or five minute miles, run five minute miles. Don't don't deviate because that structure gives you your ability to affect reality. So the the Lord's name, meaning its energetic power to co-create is within us. We are we affect and co-create reality. So then we when we express ourselves in vain and say something we don't really mean, it becomes meaningless. Life is meaningless until you give it meaning. And really, that's my take. Thank you. I, I talk about yet another aspect of God's name in vain. Uh, it, it, there is one thing in the whole Bible, in the whole Torah, where God actually says, you will not be forgiven. Just think about it. Uh, a person can commit murder, steal, do horrific things, and yet when you repent, you're forgiven. Yet in, in the Torah it's written, uh, you shall not take God's name in vain, for God will not keep you, call you guiltless, which means you will not be forgiven. What are you talking about? Are you saying that for murder, a person can be forgiven, but taking God's name in vain, a God person will not be forgiven? And of course, it's not when you take God's name in vain, like saying, oh God, what a horrible day it was. It was so difficult. Or, uh, uh, God, this is so beautiful. Uh, God, whatever way you, you may use the word God, and, and people get scared, those who are religious and observant, say, don't use the name of God because it's just wasting. That's, I, I don't think that's the prohibition of God's name in vain. It's taking God's name when you act in God's name, meaning, for example, uh, uh, jihad. It's a holy war. So... There are wonderful people who grew up in beautiful Muslim families, but they turned off from, from God, from religion, because they say, look what they're doing. They're killing people. They're blowing themselves up. Jihad means personal struggle. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a holy war, literally holy war. But it's a contradiction in terms. Already holy, whole. Holy means one. It's it's wholeness. War it means duality. It's breaking in two. It's always a war between something and something. But not only contradiction in terms, but what it does it's how to what's the word denigrate? No, what's the right word? Denigrates the word of God. Is there word such word denigrates? Uh, diminishes, destroys the word, destroys people's faith in God. You cannot use God's name and say something that is not only not true, but something that makes God uh, look like evil. I have to tell you something. I, I know, and, and now I'm afraid to take God's name in vain. I am not claiming that what I will tell you happened exactly because of my understanding why it happened. But I will tell you the fact. I know 
of a woman who was married to a very, very abusive husband, and then they got divorced. And then one day, and she was, this woman was very, very sick. And her, she, her husband didn't want to get divorced, but nevertheless, she insisted and they got divorced. And he told her, and I learned about this, and, and then something happened, as I said. He told her, look, I, I, oh, by the way, he, he was a very religious man. And he told her, if you are so righteous, if you are such a good woman, look, look, why then God punishes you? Look how healthy I am. And for my, my take was, it was a terrible, terrible taking God's name in vain. Which means he basically said, God is on my side, as if he knew. And I am telling you, within, I don't remember, three or four months, he started feeling pain. He went to see a doctor. Shortly, they discovered he had uh, uh, brain stem cancer, a bone, bone marrow cancer. Bone marrow where blood is created. I, I'm sure you have a take on it, blood, right? Yes, yeah, say it, say it. I know that you have something to say. So uh, the lack of when you insinuate that you are uh, in charge or directing God's will to another human being, you're taking yourself out of the flow. Therefore, your blood and your marrow, which is the essence of who you are, uh, lacks energy or oxygen because by holding your breath and out of anger and insinuating that God is going to punish someone on your behalf or is punishing them, it even technologically and physiologically, you're consuming yourself with the desire to be to punish uh, and, and to assume the role of God. That's, that's a much more elegant way to say it. Thank you. Yes. In fact, you, I think you know who I'm talking about. So, uh, so you know it's, it's true. And the person is no longer alive now. Anyway, another way of taking God's name in vain. Uh, I know religious people, uh, religious Jewish people for sure do it. I don't know. Uh, probably Christian people do it as well. Uh, if if you say, um, I'm going to see you, you don't say, oh, I, I will see you tomorrow. But we say, Hashem, which means God willing, I see you tomorrow. Why? Because if you say, I will see you tomorrow, again, you assume that you will be alive tomorrow or this person will be alive. It's a story. You just made up a story. You don't know. That's why we say God willing. Um, there is there is yet another way to. I, I'm, I'm, I want to see if I can put it well together. There is a principle in Judaism called Hilul Hashem, which means again denigrating or I don't have the right English word. Like the diminishing is is, is good. the name of God, uh, and that is if let's say. You are religious. For example, I wear a yarmulke, uh, uh, which shows that I'm a religious Jewish person. So 
And if I act, that, by the way, <laughs> that's how I just, since I started 15 years ago wearing, or 12 years ago wearing Yarmulke, I discovered that I'm not such a good, nice guy, actually. <laughs> Why? Because I noticed suddenly I was wearing Yarmulke and I was acutely aware that, like, let's say, I cut somebody off and I'm wearing a Yarmulke. You understand? So, which means when I didn't, I didn't pay attention. I didn't care. So, but, but the idea is that you, if you are religious, for example, you're wearing a cross, or you're wearing a, 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 a Hebrew star, or you're wearing Yarmulke, you are saying, I am connected with God. And then people who are not religious see you acting in some disrespectful way or nasty way. And they say, ah, look at this. This is God. This is religion. So that's also... Uh, taking God's name in vain, or, or more, Helur Hashem, uh, diminishing the God, because God wants us, or uh, using uh, words of, of Vlad, the flow comes for us. It's not just meaningless. This flow is meaningful. It's infused us with energy and life and creative power. So when we destroy that, I don't want to say God doesn't like it, because God doesn't, it's not like I, you say it, say it good, a good way, but. <laughs> I don't know if it's a good way or a bad way, but you know, I, thought, I thought about something while you were speaking. Yeah. Uh, there's an organization that I won't name, because we don't speak badly about others or other organizations, but uh, they did the world a huge disservice they taught people mystical aspects of Judaism, Kabbalistic principles uh, to people who are simple folk, and they baited them on superstition. And uh, very often you'll hear these folks that are attending courses in, in this entity that uh, will say, oh, I use the 72 names of God. Well, <laughs> these are all high-frequency vibrational keys that stimulate the flow of energy for different aspects of reality. And so when you live on a lower vibration and you live in a superstitious world and what if and you're consumed by your conspiracies and your stories and you don't live an observant life that keeps you at a level where you can use those keys, you then mouth those keys, you, you're, you're verbalizing those keys in vain, because living on a physical material level and wearing a red string around your wrist doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't raise the vibration of your soul, and verbalizing these magical keys of reality doesn't serve you at all. In fact, you're doing yourself a disservice because you become frustrated with the system and yourself because you're not becoming a uh, as they say in the wellness world, an effective co-creator or a manifester. And the, the disservices and the, where the commandment comes in in this situation is, is where you're literally taking the vibrational keys, the different names that we call the creative force, in order to stimulate the creative process, you're calling on it while you're underneath a table or in a cave. 
So you don't have a broader perspective of reality. You don't have a, a broader view of reality as a result of the light in you because you're sustained by a lifestyle that keeps you at a vibrational state where you can use those keys. So it's so it's in vain. I just it's just an addition because people always say, "Oh, I'm studying this." You're studying this, but you're not living this. We're just a young man that you and I both know, as a matter of fact. Well, I studied a little bit of this, of Kabbalah. I mean, people, they think it's, uh, you know, some Kumbaya crystal healing. It's, it has nothing to do with it. They're vibrational keys. So if you verbalize them and you're not living a lifestyle that keeps your soul at a certain level, you can't, they're useless. You'll be frustrated and let down. You're setting yourself up for failure. By the way, I have to say, Kumbaya is a beautiful song. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it may work for them very well. And most of the time when people sing this song, they <laughs> sing, uh, many people sing. So they feel connected. It actually works very well. It's those who sing without being... Uh, in it with the heart, then it becomes an empty slogan. Yes, let's let's move to the fourth commandment. <laughs> we are not too fast. We'll, uh, fourth commandment is honor Sabbath. It's interesting. Uh, this is a big one. My favorite. Yeah, uh, there are only two things in the whole Torah that are repeated 12 times. Nothing else is repeated as many times. One is uh, uh, honor Sabbath and keep it holy. And the other one, uh, be uh, honorable, be uh, respectful, and do be good to the convert. So there are two things. The rest is 10 times, five times, six times. But the Sabbath is over and over repeated. And it's written, uh, it is my covenant between me. It's a covenant between me and you and my children. So it's first it's given to the Hebrew people. But at the same time, in, um, in Genesis, we already read, you will be the holy nation and you will be the teachers into the nations, which means you will take what I give you and then spread around the world. Just like Christianity, for example, spread basic precepts of Judaism and the fact that we have uh, Sunday and Saturday now is, of course, a direct consequence uh, of, of this commandment uh, on of Sabbath commandment. Yes, in fact, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Vlad, uh, Romans, no, I probably we spoke about it once. Uh, the Romans called it the, uh, called us the lazy nation, right? Did we ever speak? Did I speak with you about it? No, no. So because remember, and Greeks too, because in those times, in ancient times, uh, once Ro Romans conquered uh, the Hebrews, then they gave gave them autonomy. Only after the uh, Hebrews rebelled and ta ta ta. Um, the, the temple was destroyed and Hebrews were thrown out of the Holy Land. But for, for a couple of hundred years, Romans captured uh, what is, was Israel and, and then they gave them autonomy. 
Uh, but what they noticed, uh, of course, the wealthy people didn't work. They had slaves and servants working for them. But slaves and, and servants worked they, all the time. And, and, of course, the animals worked all the time. And they suddenly noticed the Hebrews, and the commandment says, you will not work on Sabbath, your servant will not work, your slave will not work, your, uh, your animals will not work. So they were saying, you're just lazy people. And then, of course, we have so many holidays, and on the holidays we also don't work. So that's how, through centuries, we were called lazy nation. And But Archbishop Michael Flannery, Catholic Archbishop, uh, said, if Hebrews, if Jews did not contribute to the world anything but just one idea, Sabbath, they must be honored throughout centuries, no, through eternity, he said, I believe. So uh, now, Vlad, do you want to start talking about the uh, Fourth Commandment? Well, it's my, uh, it, it's been the biggest challenge of my observant life. And it's interesting that I get to talk about it because uh, I recently moved and uh, I moved away from my favorite synagogue where I get to, used to get to walk. Now I have to walk 25 minutes to a synagogue. And um, uh, I resisted at any cost because I, I really love my rabbi. He's super smart and he's, it's a pleasure to be around him. And there's a great, it's a 25,000 square foot jewel. So I, I love going there. But um, it seems as if once you connect to the phenomenon of the Sabbath, it engages your soul in receiving to such an extent that you can't go back. So then by the by the by the simple mind or by the by folks that are don't are not looking for a great meaning was oh God's punishing us. No. It doesn't punish or reward. There's no guy in the sky. The fact is that the, the light of the creative force shines 1,000 degrees brighter on that day. And it's impossible to make any plans. And it's not intended. It's not a day of rest. It's a day to reconnect and disconnect from your habitual slave behavior. Meaning no planning, no thoughts about outcomes, no work is not the only it's, it's work isn't the only issue you literally gather yourself from the impulses of the human experience so that you can refuel your soul you know somebody would say like you just said well what about sunday how come it's not friday because it's the seventh day and so if you look on the for those of you that subscribe to astrology saturday is the seventh day and it's in saturn and according to astrological chart Saturn is the planet of disaster. So the light shines so bright that when you plan to do something, it all falls apart because it's a day to receive and to replenish your soul, to disconnect from driving, spending money, being on your iPad, being on your computer, 
uh, you know, doing the things, the mundane things that we do in everyday life so that we can gather ourselves from the impulses of the human experience and refuel the souls and be an effective co-creator of what we desire. When we don't do that consistently, we are then relegated to the happenstance and the obstacles of the human experience, the material reality. So it, you're consistently, and it's not enough to stay home. And the reason I brought up my reality right now is because I could, st- uh, halakhically, meaning uh, uh, correctly, I should not be driving to the synagogue. I should then stay home if I don't have one within walking distance. But I do. I have one in 25-minute walking distance. I'm just not... It's not my style. It's all uh, Israelis. Everybody speaks Hebrew. I can't relate to them. I can come up with a million reasons. You're going to laugh what's happened. Both mine and Ruckel's car, the battery died. <laughs> I swear, they're both new cars. Which means, if we look at it in a realized way, which Hebrews and Jews have been for thousands of years, that means the vehicle that propels me forward the, my, my energetic battery that gives me energy dying, which tells me that I'm deviating from receiving. It's, it's a literal guideline. So it's not as if it's a punishment. I'm not being punished for my misdoings or, or my ill behavior. It's just that once you expose your soul to the light of, the, of observing the Sabbath, the soul receives so much light you can't go backwards. You can't all of a sudden turn the light off. It starts fumbling in the human experience. And it fumbles, literally, it trips over itself. It will not permit you. So no, it's not, it's not, it's not, that's, this is a, an interesting point. It's not as if something, Rachel said, you know, my wife is Rachel, so I call her Rachel. She said, oh, it's not, it's, who says there's free will? What do you mean? <laughs> there's free will it's just that once you expose yourself to that amount of light how do you then turn it off all of a sudden say, oh this week i'm not doing it. it's not i'm not i'm not interested in that much in that much light once you start sustaining your soul consistently with the flow and taking yourself out of your mundane reality and going to whatever your church or your your house of worship on the seventh day and abstaining from the impulses of the human experience, the light of your body, the soul's light gets used to being sustained. It's what it's intended for. And then all of a sudden, next, the following week, you decide to deviate, you're shutting the light off. So it starts to fumble and, and literally fumble in the human experience. It encounters obstacles that it's not used to. It's like bumping into tables or walls. That's my take. Thank you. Uh, also, I, I see the Sabbath as a, in a practic- very practical way, um, in a simple way, avoiding become, like you said, slave of habitual life, becoming habituated. It's not only energy flow, but you, you know, life is about breath in and breath out. You cannot keep breathing in. Chinese have this beautiful symbol, yin and yang. Cannot be all yin. Or you cannot live on your sympathetic nervous system. Has to be sympathetic, parasympathetic. Excitation, relaxation. So 
six days a week, we're on sympathetic nervous system. We're expanding. We're creating. That's why on the seventh day, we're not permitted to initiate anything, to start a fire, to start any creative process. Otherwise, we, we're just robots. Every single day, and I've seen so many people over the years who made enormous amount of money. In fact, I know someone concretely now, somebody is in my mind, that is super wealthy. Beyond, uh, I'm talking about billions of dollars. And very bright person, very caring, very charitable. But he said to me, Peter, I don't know. I said, how do you, how do you have fun? How do you relax? And he said, I don't know how to have fun. I do not know. And I've been talking to him for a while. And it's super difficult for him to find anything to have fun with. He literally became a robot. Habituated. Uh, it's almost like it reminds me of a movie, Shaoshin Redemption, where the guy became institutionalized. Remember? Yeah become institutionalized in this world, in the physical material world. And you keep doing, 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 and you're not receiving. So you're running on empty and you can run, 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 and then boom, no longer running. You it's, a, it's, very, it's a very interesting point, this last thing you're saying. Um, I found it to be true for the elderly that don't have a ritual life or have any kind of observance in their lives when they're no longer vigorous and full of life and can no longer get lost in their doing or their vocation or their job, their lives become empty. And so the emptiness um, starts to give them anxiety because they don't spend their lives in, in a worthy cause. You know, they, don't, they don't have a sense of urgency to sustain that part of themselves that actually provides for them and gives them the ability to imagine or enlighten their life, to give life to their reality. And so they start to shrink, literally, and, and um, calcify. I think it's the, it's the cause of Alzheimer's. Interesting. You mentioned the Alzheimer's, you know, French. Because there's no, there's no ritual through which we receive or pause, even. There's no pause. So when you're no longer vigorous and, and you and no longer do physically, what do you do? And there is great anxiety about dying. Yeah. Because there is nothing there. The French have a very interesting way of, of naming things. Uh, and I noticed it's not just with Alzheimer's, but uh, Alzheimer's in French is retourner des enfants. What is it? A return to childhood, right? Re return to infancy. And some 25 years ago, a neuroscientist discovered, you, we know that the brain, uh, when, when uh, is still in a, in, in a, as a fetus, and then slowly as an as a infant, the brain is being wired in particular patterns. What they discovered 25 years ago, maybe a few years before that, that when a person has, has Alzheimer's, the brain gets unwired exactly in the same way. So literally people who, don't, who are not open to spiritual life and not wel don't welcome 
what is coming, they literally want to retourner des enfants. They want to go back to infancy, and they actually are going. So that's that's the process. Um, you want, you yeah. want to um, uh, open the uh, open the door for questions? We have eight minutes. Uh, we have uh, some six, seven minutes. I, if anybody wants to call, they would call. I don't see. Uh, I usually have a little here and uh, Jesse shows me that somebody wants to call. Uh, nobody is calling, so um, we can start. <laughs> I, I thought we would be able, we'll, we'll be able to finish up Ten Commandments, but no. we'll have to together again. Uh, well, let's let's start. Let's take another five minutes and start on the Fifth Commandment, which honor your parent, honor your father and mother, which which is. Uh, uh, they, but remember, when we say, when I say a commandment, it's how they're written on, on tablets. But in the Torah, then there is an expansion. And it's written, honor your parents, father and mother, so that you and your children may live. Now, wait a minute. Great. Isn't it about being good to your parents? No. So that you and your children may live. And my, in my experience as a therapist over the years, 43 years now, I found that anybody who, or I should say, I don't remember any person that I worked with who was angry with, with his her parents, who was disconnected from the parents, who hated their parents, who never speak to their parents, or whose parents died and they had big, big issues I did not find that person ever being happy. I say to so many people who now who have their parents and, and angry with their parents, I say, you must know before your parents die that you did right by your parents. I'm, you are I'm a living testament. And two things I want to address what you said that uh, I've been, I, I, I started out in therapy at 14 years old. And the framework of therapeutics of, that I'm familiar with has always been that it's your parents' fault. Well, uh, the Bible and, and the Torah, the old, what, what Christianity calls the Old Testament, says otherwise. And it is the only framework that should be used for therapy because I'm a living testament to the fact that until I made peace, with both my mother and father, I didn't meet my wife. Uh, that's a beautiful. That's that's, and you know my life. You know, uh, <laughs> we'll we'll be so happy to hear what you what you said. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Listen, say that, and and there's nothing more to say because it it's such a huge subject of why that happens. Because until you understand that you chose them and that you're a soul going through a human experience and no one did anything to you. You're completely responsible for your choices. You're completely responsible for what's happening to you. No one did anything to you. And they are your co-creators that create brought you into this world until you make peace and accept them as people and not mommy and daddy then you will have honor them and respect their reality. It's written in Kabbalah, in, in Zohar, 
you choose the womb opening which you can, which you come through, which you come, which means our soul, neshama, needing to work on certain issues needs genetic material to come through. Absolutely. Of of parents that carry traits which are similar to the traits that you need to work through. So that is why you are choosing these parents. So good and bad that your parents showed you and infused you with is exactly what you needed to start working on your own stuff. Right. We'll get to it. It's a very interesting uh, a point. A lot of people off. But what? I said it's going to piss a lot of people off. Yeah. Because so busy blaming their mommy and their daddy for their happenstance. Uh, I don't think these days there is a big shift, fortunately. Yeah. It's interesting because when I came to the United States 40 years ago, it was dominant. So many times I would see somebody who would say, oh yeah, I've been through therapy, I understand what my parents did to me. Not in the last, in the last 25 years, what they call humanistic psychology started taking over and they gave up kind of Freudian uh, analysis where, you know, it's all your parents and, and the, basically you wanted to kill your father and, and have sex with your mother or the opposite, kill your yeah. mother. So that's, that's already becoming, fortunately, the past. We'll get back to this subject. It's a very interesting subject and I'm sure we have a lot to say, both you and I, about the Fifth Commandment. Uh, but our time is coming to an end. Uh, and unfortunately, now it really runs very fast. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want to tell you next week uh, I will have another guest, uh, Dr. Bob Conley. Just to tell you a couple of words, I call him uh, Bob the Magician. I worked with him at the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine for 15 years. And if you choose to be with us, um, Next Tuesday, I think you will not regret. And after that, um, probably Vlad and I, I, we did not discuss it because I, I thought that we'll finish with the commandments today, but maybe Vlad and I will meet after that again. But I'm looking forward to getting your emails. Uh, uh, and uh, Vlad, thank you very much for taking time. Um, I love doing it. I'm glad we did it. Me too, me too. Uh, I wish everyone a wonderful week and peace to all who want to live in peace.